Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, John is joined by Anastasia Koraleva, who's an experienced entrepreneur and former technology company CEO. Now, after her first nine-figure exit, she went on to start three more businesses. Today, she's the host of the podcast Exit Paradox, where she talks about some of the most remarkable exited founders in the world, about the lessons they learned about life after selling their business. Now, in this episode, Anastasia will describe how she rebuilt her life after exiting her companies. She talks about avoiding money mistakes post-exit, rebuilding your pyramid, achieving closure, investors versus creators, the angel investing trap, talking to your kids about money, and a whole lot more. Here to share with you her insight and story is Anastasia Koraleva. Enjoy. Anastasia Koraleva, welcome to Built Cell Radio. Hello, John. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Four exits, one nine-figure giant exit. And I, you know, I'm really fascinated by what makes a successful transition uh, for life after the exit. So we're going to do this in two parts as we were talking about before we hit record. Uh, first talk part of this section, I want to really talk about your own personal journey and mm -hmm. how you kind of navigated life after your various exits. And then you've also got a tremendous podcast called Exit Paradox, mm -hmm. where uh, you just explore this conversation with owners about what they need to think about as, as it relates to their psychological happiness and readiness to exit their business. So I'm really <laughs> excited to, to dive in with you. Thank you. Thank you. Me too. Very excited. Been a fan of your show for a while. So very flattered that you asked me for this interview. Oh, that's, that's very kind. Well, I mean, you, you fit the bill perfectly mm -hmm. as a guest as well as an expert. So let's talk about your world as a guest, uh, an entrepreneur uh, who built a nine-figure, uh, had a nine-figure exit at Intermedia. Um, what was life like for you after that exit? How would you describe it? Well, the timing was uh, quite tricky for me. Uh, that business we had together with my first husband, and um, we just had uh, two children, one after another. So I was very much focused on uh, learning to be a mother. I also, at that time, already had my second company, which we started um, while uh, we still had Intermediate. And that company had seven uh, patent lawsuits in different countries in the world going all at the same time. And we were selling, uh, having our first exit uh, at Intermedia. So, so the timing was quite challenging. And uh, frankly, my, um, I was very distracted in the beginning from uh, enjoying it or even processing uh, the experience because, because I was so overwhelmed. And also, um, my um, husband at the time and I had a very different reaction to that experience. Possibly because I was also dealing with this uh, very new motherhood for me in a different way that he dealt with his fatherhood. And, and unfortunately, our, um, our marriage actually didn't survive uh, that uh, whole roller coaster. And it took me years to understand that that exit was a big part of um, us not staying together. And um, it's one, I, I basically think that I probably made every single possible mistake. Uh, uh, anybody can make after an exit. And my excuse is that I had so much going on all at the same time. And, and unfortunately, uh, the marriage uh, was also a victim of that. Uh, I have since remarried and I have another child, so it's all good. But looking back, I can see how certain things could have been avoided. A lot of suffering could have been avoided. And that's part of the reason I'm so fascinated by uh, the whole challenge, psychological challenge of a post-exit journey. You know, it's an interesting conundrum. And maybe this is why you refer your podcast as the exit paradox, because it, the very skills that allow an entrepreneur to create a seven, eight, nine figure business, uh, you drive obsession, uh, focus are what I'm, you almost need to, if, from what your research says, 
like have a complete reprogramming of some mm -hmm. of those uh, attributes, personality attributes from being ultimately selfish. Like a lot of entrepreneurs, like, let's be honest, there is a selfish streak to them, right? They are, I am going to achieve this. I'm going to hit this milestone or that milestone and I'm going to be successful, damn it. And, and at the end of the day, what I'm hearing you say is, yeah. is that the very personality attributes that have made them successful are the ones that are most troubling in their post-exit life. Well, but they don't have to be. Uh, the, the reason I, I use this uh, term exit paradox is because I think uh, there are actually two paradoxes in, in, a, in a business exit. And we're talking about life change and successful exits, just to, to simplify things. So the first paradox is that usually our exit, no matter how financially rewarding it is, does not meet our expectations because the expectation consciously or subconsciously is usually that life will become better and simpler. And it just doesn't. It becomes harder. We face new challenges, which we do not necessarily want to have. Like, for example, learning to become an investor, which is something that lots of value creators absolutely hate. <laughs> Uh, and the stress of, of, of dealing with this and the stress that our relationships going through. So there are all these challenges. But, but Anastasia, a lot of our listeners are like getting out their little mini violin right now and saying, oh, boohoo, <laughs> must be really hard to have to learn how to invest all your millions. <laughs> Most <laughs> of our listeners haven't had that big, you know, nine figure exit uh, moment. And so for them, uh, that probably sounds like you know one percent problems, or you know, but you know. and it totally is. It totally is, absolutely. But I'm, I'm just thinking for someone who is dreaming about getting there, right? And I understand that you know the majority of your audience would be in that category. They either already expect it, or they're dreaming about it, and they're in, inspired by it. It's extremely important to understand both the good things and bad things about it. But if if you don't mind, I think you'll you'll probably realize that I'm not I'm not just bragging about the <laughs> first world problems. Uh, where this changes dramatically is actually the second part of this paradox. So the first part of the paradox is that we don't want to admit it to anybody, but we we are not as happy as we thought we, we would be, and there are millions of things that. Um, it, uh, wealth solves for us, millions of problems that wealth solves, solves for us. It, it, it's absolutely great. It's important. I think uh, it, definitely, it definitely makes people happy and no question about it. But the second part of the paradox is, I think, the one that is not widely understood. And that paradox is that that very challenge um, of, of dealing with disappointment in a way is a shortcut for that deeply fulfilling and meaningful life that people do crave once finances is not long, no longer the top priority. So what happens is that I, I like to use uh, you know, Maslow Pyramid uh, as, as a tool just because there is no need creating any more tools of fancy abbreviations. Everybody's familiar with it. But I think it's extremely, extremely helpful uh, tool to think about uh, during exit. So when we are building our business, what we're doing essentially, we're building up our Maslow pyramid. We're creating the world where each of our needs is satisfied by our business. So we get security from our business, we get self-esteem, we get, get love and belonging from our partners and employees. It's usually a bit of an illusion because they don't necessarily love you as much as, <laughs> as, as, as you think. You only realize that after you sell a company, but, but nevertheless, your need is satisfied. And then, of course, we are self-actualizing at a very intense speed when we're building a company. So for somebody who built something very successful, it means by definition that they built a very successful Maslow pyramid for themselves. So when we sell the business, the whole thing uh, is destroyed, right? And that's very important because we don't expect that to happen. And money cannot automatically compensate for it. 
What we need to do is to use that money and use the time and use the skill to rebuild that, that pyramid. And it's not straightforward. It's not that easy. And no one actually takes us by the hand and helps us. So even those, even, even those of us who go through therapy or hire amazing coaches very quickly run into the problem that selling a business as an experience is very similar to having children or maybe having sex for the first time. Nobody can, can relate to it unless they actually went through it. It's so unique. It's so different from anything else. So uh, there are not many people out there, even if they are psychologists or, or amazing coaches who can help you rebuild that pyramid uh, in a way that suits your unique experience and personality. Um, but if you have this sort of simple idea that I need to rebuild it from ground up. That's probably the simplest guidance you can, you can have. But I think it's extremely important to, to not kind of, to think about one um, less known part of that whole Maslow hierarchy theory. And that is that we start craving the next level of, um, kind of things in that pyramid, when the, the previous level is sufficiently satisfied. So that word sufficiently is extremely important because we need to master our motivation. So again, going back to how, how that is the second part of the uh, exit paradox is that if we understand those kind of simple things in a way that are not simple to execute, but, but simple concepts, and we start rebuilding that pyramid properly. And we are not shying away from things like, you know, purpose and meaning and spirituality. We really open our hearts to, to those ideas. Then there is a shortcut, basically, that our exit creates for us by giving us this time and wealth and skills all together at the same time to jump to that much more fulfilling, meaningful life and rebuild it very relatively quickly and have, have an amazing life. So basically, if I compare people who are successful post-exit to those who are often even unhappier, this is a difference. It's interesting because there's some people listening to this saying, wow, like I built my beautiful Maslow's hierarchy of needs. My business does provide security and fulfillment and self-esteem and connection and purpose. And why on, why on earth would I ever sell it now? You've just given me like the most incredible advertisement for not selling your yeah. company. Is that what you hope that people don't sell? And they, uh, they... Not, not necessarily, but I keep challenging my friends who are trying to sell the company again and again and again to make sure they fully, they fully understand what they are doing. Because you're totally right. Lots of businesses. Actually, yesterday I had a conversation with a friend of mine who is trying to sell a company that is a, uh, is a cash cow. And it's an amazing cash cow. And I really had to restrain myself to talk him out of it because I try not to do that. But I was trying to scare him with all the different stories of people who sold these kind of companies just to realize that there is not only this whole emotional challenge that we're just talking about, but also a very pragmatic challenge of how difficult it is to create something you control and it creates a cash flow at the same time. It's actually very, very hard. People have romanticized this idea of passive income. Uh, but passive income, A, is usually not very passive if it's good income. Um, and second, it's actually very, very hard to create growth and cash flows we're used to in our businesses, usually by the time we sell them post-exit. But um, I don't think I succeeded yesterday because <laughs> he, he, just, he just wants that, that sale. <laughs> well, okay, let me, let, me, let me kind of flip it on its ear and sort of argue the other case, which is I think a lot of founders, sometimes seven, sometimes 10 years in, their business no longer satiates 
their uh, need for purpose, their need for connectivity. Like they, it grows to a point where they don't enjoy it anymore. Mm-hmm. Like they're not doing the things that they love. Mm-hmm. It's not giving them the same purpose. Mm-hmm. So I was being facetious and saying, why would anybody sell <laughs> a little bit? But just try to draw you into the debate a bit. But the but the reality is, I think a lot of entrepreneurs do reach a point where it's the business is just no longer. Yeah, yes, it could be more successful. Yes, I could continue to grow for the next 10, 20, 30 years, but it, it won't make me happy because yeah. I'm not doing the things that I love. And, yeah. and that seems like the 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 time that they need to step off. Mm-hmm. their current pyramid and yeah. start to recreate their next pyramid. Yeah. Is that kind of the case you, you'd make? Well, uh, it's, it, it, it's great that we, we are talking about this because I think there may be great reasons not to sell, but there are also great reasons to sell. What are they? So, for example, what you just mentioned, if, um, if, you're not happy and you're not interested in this business anymore and you cannot fully delegate it, right? Then selling the business may be a very good idea. Also, if you understand that this generally, that you will be losing your Maslow pyramid, you will have to rebuild it, but you're very excited about it because actually that's exactly what you want. Because as I said, it's, I think it's a shortcut to a much more fulfilling life. If you, if you, if you're ready to put in the work required on yourself, it's a beautiful reason to sell. So I wouldn't say that there is ever um, a yes or no sort of answer for everyone, but I would always encourage people to really think through their own situation and, and make sure uh, you know what you are, what you're trying to do. I also think there are, uh, three things that I would try to do before an exit or very, very soon after. So one is uh, to change your mindset um, and at least to start working on it because changing a mindset is, is, is quite an exercise, but to at least you know, start thinking about a different mindset, preparing yourself. And that mindset should be very much about uh, giving yourself permission to not know, to be open, and to be very, very kind to yourself. Because an extremely important thing to do is to give yourself enough time to heal. We are so traumatized at that moment when we sell our business because it's so hard to build one. We've sacrificed so much of our health and mental health and relationships to build a business. So healing is extremely important and i think the sooner people program themselves that when i sell the business i heal myself first the better uh and and another thing which which um is also very important and very impactful is starting to build this new social network very um uh, very consciously to include people who have the experience because when, when we sell the business, um, I always encourage people to join these organizations where they can find uh, that social support. And I regret that I didn't do it soon enough. Um, there are f- fantastic organizations. There are uh, amazing programs that you can do that are both educational and, and help you build your network. And they're totally worth uh, your money because um, they save you a lot of uh, money and time and, and emotional energy. So um, that, I think, is, is, is definitely another thing to start doing ahead of time. So, so there are ways to mitigate the disaster if you have at least some general idea of what to expect. One of your guests, uh, I think his name was Bill Hedenko. I may be pronouncing his surname oh, yeah. correctly. Hedenko, yeah. Yeah. Uh, he talked about this idea of achieving closure mm-hmm. before you exit. Yeah. And, and I, I thought that was a really thought provoking idea. This notion that, you know, you, you could be doing an earnout, you may mm-hmm. roll some equity, but at the end of the day, like when the majority shareholder changes and you're no longer the mm-hmm. majority owner, 
and in control, um, it's it's kind of too late a period to get closure. You kind of have to have closure beforehand. What were your thoughts when you heard him describe that? I thought it was brilliant. Uh, first of all, I, I I admire Bill so much, and he's uh, one of the reasons I really wanted him on on my show is because it's very hard to find an exited founder, especially one who who had several exits like him who is also a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology in a major university. So he definitely has the authority for me and, 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 and respect. And I listen to everything he says, but I absolutely could relate to what he's saying. The, the thought I had, I didn't quite debate it with him, but you kind of need to achieve that closure when you're very sure that you're selling the business. Right. Because the worst thing that may happen is that you've achieved this closure, but for reasons maybe outside of your control, the sale doesn't happen. And then and then there is this, a disconnect between you and, and your business. And it may be quite a difficult uh, time. So the timing of that closure is very important. Like, like, for example, with Intermedia, we didn't sell it very fast. We actually went through, you know, pr- probably two and a half years of very tiring uh, attempts to sell. And it's a common story. And that if I think back at what point should I have uh, achieved that closure? You know what I mean? I do. I do. It's it's so fascinating. Uh, I, I'd encourage folks to listen back to Mark Zweig's, uh, Zweig's excuse me, I'm pronouncing his surname incorrectly, uh, uh, episode of Built Cell Radio where he, he says that the hardest four years of his life were after a deal fell through to uh-huh. have his business acquired and he had to sort of pick up the pieces and 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 build for the next four years and then had a, had an exit but but ultimately he characterized those four years as one of the hardest. On a separate note, I'm 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 somewhat feeling like it in the twilight zone having this conversation because I've just had a conversation with a guy named Adam Coffee. Adam's episode will be live by the time that our episode goes live. And Adam uh, talks about the the private equity playbook. This idea that really, you know, the most successful entrepreneurs sell the private equity, roll uh, some of their proceeds, uh, build the company up as the CEO, uh, sell it a second time, sell it a third time, and and all the while they're you know they're they're a minority shareholder, but they're they're building wealth because the capital of the private equity group, et cetera. And it's so, uh, to use your word, paradoxical for me, because it's such a, a different, you know, in Adam's case, he, he, he thinks of business as the idea is that we're trying to grow a business as big as possible. Mm-hmm. And of course you have to give up a bunch of equity to do that, but your job is to build the business as a manager of the business. Mm-hmm. And, but what you're saying is that once the founder is no longer in control, like it's a psychological uh, turning point in their mind. Like it's a huge change, right? They jump off this this Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We're at the top of the pyramid. Mm-hmm. Everything's great, mm-hmm. and then they move to a situation where they're like they're they're building their life up from scratch. But Adam would say. Oh, just because you're no longer the majority shareholder, um, that doesn't mean anything. We grow the business, even if you own only 10% of it. You got to scale, scale, grow, 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 grow. And he would have this very different view than you do, which is, you know, once you sell, you're going to go through this incredible roller coaster of emotions. You lose your sense of purpose, you lose your identity. And he doesn't see that because he's a private equity guy, right? He mm-hmm. sees, mm-hmm. he doesn't see what you see. Yeah. Um, I, I should, to be fair to Adam, I, I haven't asked him specifically, but I think, you know, he would not, um, feel the same way. He would say the purpose of business is to grow it as big as you possibly can. And, uh, and whether you own the majority of it, a minority of it, a tiny slice of it, that's somewhat irrelevant. The goal is to build what you're saying is very different. It, um, I'm just curious to know your reaction to, to uh, that. No, sort of- absolutely. I have a very uh, uh, simple reaction to that. It is my observation that uh, successful exited founders belong broadly to one of two groups. 
creators and investors. And that really is who we are. I don't think it's very easy for creators to be investors. And this is exactly why I think so many angel investors or VCs are unhappy because they're they're innately creators. But it's also very hard for an investor to become a builder or creator. And both are equally fantastic, right, and great. And I learned this lesson actually surprisingly from my children because I have two teenage boys that are very entrepreneurial and the older one is very successful financially already, even though he's 17. But when you raise children, you really, really know them, right? You've seen them from from the time they, they were born. And my older one is a true investor. He has zero interest in, in creating a building, but he just sees how to make money and he just goes for it. He's fantastic. And maybe um, your guest belongs to, to that category. But then his brother is the opposite. He cannot not create. He has to create all the time. And I can see how he can be very successful doing exactly that, but he'll never be like his brother. And that's great. And I love them both equally. I respect them both equally. And I see exactly the same two groups um, in, among uh, successful people, exited founders or, or, or not. Yeah, I love that distinction, investors versus creators. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, the, the creator, I, I, my sense is that they lose motivation, they lose interest in their company when they're no longer creating. And that might be at mm-hmm. 10 employees or 20 employees mm-hmm. or 50 employees, but fairly early in the trajectory of the business yeah. life cycle, they're like, no thanks, I'm, I'm not scratching that itch anymore. Whereas the investor, uh, yeah, some of the some of the most financially sophisticated people I know are some of the least creative to be, to be just totally blunt about it. I mean, that's, that's an oversimplification. I'm sure there's very creative financially, but in general, the investors I know who are great capital allocators aren't necessarily the best creators. And so I can see why people who are investors enjoy the mature stages of a business and enjoy kind of mm-hmm. placing capital in different businesses. Yeah. Um, so having the the self-awareness to figure out which you are. Is there an acid test, a way, I mean, you've done it with your own kids, but that's taken obviously years. Is, is there a question you might ask yourself or encourage our listeners to ask themselves to, to, to decipher whether they are a creator or an investor? Well, I think if people are very honest with themselves and they just have to pick one over the other in terms of their priority, whether they care more about what drives them. If they're driven by the idea of uh, playing this game of money-making successfully, and I'm not necessarily saying greed because I think greed can be satisfied, but I see lots of investors just loving the game and they're doing it for, for, for the process, for, for, for winning. For it's, it's really more like a game thinking. Or they really cannot not create. Because mm. I have amazing friends who are exited founders and they um, exited their businesses. They, they hit this emotional roller coaster. Um, they had all sorts of problems with relationships and everything under the sun. And yet they absolutely had to continue creating because I think that what, that, that's what defines these serial builders, right? They, they have to keep building. Despite everything, actually, uh, talking back about you know Maslow um, pyramid, he uh, I only fully understood uh, the wisdom of of his theory when I actually read his books because what what we are taught at school is 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 very superficial. But he has seven exceptions of of types of people who don't actually follow uh, the rules, and these were his observations for him for his work as a a clinical psychologist. And there are two exceptions there that when put together actually explain a lot in terms of how some post-exit founders behave. So these are people uh, who have so much of this innate creativity, and he calls them creators, that they don't, they are so motivated by the creation that they actually don't need all the other needs to be sufficiently satisfied to jump right into self-actualization. 
And lots of famous artists or musicians are exactly like that. Their lives are complete mess. <laughs> and they never spend any time actually dealing with it. Uh, history is full of these stories. But, but they cr keep creating. They spend all their time. They feel no sufficient pain to address all these other things. Yeah. It sounds, I mean, like Elon Musk would be the classic example of what you're describing, right? Yeah. So Starlink, Tesla, space, yeah. I mean, go on and on. Yeah. The boring, I mean, you could go on about his, but, but you know, troubled yeah. personal life, you know, lots of kids and lots of situations there. Mm -hmm. I want to exactly. air dirty laundry about Elon Musk, but, you know, uh, having read the biography, there's lots of stuff there and and yet he loves to create right like yeah. there's always another thing that he wants to yeah. create and he's perfectly comfortable not being financially safe right this is right. what always surprised people like why did he sleep on a friend's couch when he had just sold the, uh his business so successfully but that's exactly what it is so when you when you're asking me how do you know i think you know <laughs> interesting Interesting. One of the things that I've heard you talk about as a mistake, and I think it came up in one of your one of your episodes as well, is is entrepreneurs after selling their company often make the mistake of becoming angel investors. Like they think they've got a, a gift and they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna become angel investors. Mm -hmm. Why is that a mistake? Um. Well, it was a mistake for me. First of all, so I'm not, I'm not necessarily saying it's a mistake for everyone, but I do uh, hear that a lot, that people uh, go in that direction and then they really, really regret it. And I think that is more typical of, of value creators because what we, for example, let, let me talk about my situation. Uh, I think it would be better. So in my case, I thought I was... Um, uh, doing angel investing for all the right reasons. So my explanations at the time for myself was, oh my God, I really want to learn more from these amazing people. I want to have all these startup founders, all this energy. I want to be part of the ecosystem. I want to give back, right? Because part of angel investing is usually also mentoring and I want to give, give back. I had such a beautiful explanation for what I was doing. Yeah, it sounds very self-worth. Sounds very actualized. Years so later, second pyramid. Years yeah. later, when I when I learned to be uh, uh, honest with myself, I had to face the truth. The real reason I did it was because I wanted to matter. I had this identity crisis, and I was like, "Oh my god, and I'm no longer a CEO founder. Who am I? I'm I'm out of this ecosystem. I'm nobody." And I was panicking. I really needed some label. And then again, maybe subconsciously, I'm not even sure. I kind of looked around and like, what others do? What are the cool labels? The cool labels in Silicon Valley would be, you know, angel investing or VC. And everybody is talking about it. And then you hang out with other angel investing. It's kind of social fun. And then what happened was that soon enough, I got bored with it. I got bored with it because I realized that uh, first of all, I'm much more interested in spending time with the people who already sold the company, the, uh, their companies, because I can relate to them more. Second, I spend so much time uh, with these people together with the money. Um, that is not really fun for me. And uh, as, as I'm sure you know, time becomes such a much more important currency than money after you exit the business. It's, it's all about time, right? And I, I became more mindful of that, maybe even greedy of my time. And then the second thing is that the actual analysis of businesses, I find totally boring because I'm not an investor. And this is such a common story. I hear it again and again and again. So it's a common, it's common. It's not just your own experience. Oh, you heard it common. again on the I, th I think it's, I think it's much more common than when people actually enjoy it. And people who enjoy it are usually people who, whose personality are investors. If you look at their previous businesses, their previous businesses were probably either in financial services industry or they had some kind of training before. For example, they used to work in the financial industry, then they had a company, then they sort of, they, they love investing um, a lot. Or they're also very pragmatic. Like I have some friends who maybe never worked in the financial industry, but they just have this 
uh, mindset. And they created a business purely because they found a financial opportunity they pursued. They never cared about <laughs> the essence of the business very much. They never wanted to create. They were just very good at, at uh, uh, milking that financial opportunity. Yeah. That's, that's the investor type of a personality. I'm glad you brought up money earlier because I wanted to dig in here. I know you ask a lot of your guests about money and, and whether the money that they earn through their sale of their company brings happiness. And I, I think some of those conversations are, are interesting. I think a lot of our listeners are yet to have that massive liquidity event. Uh, their business may be worth a lot on paper, but it has not yet been um, made liquid. And and a lot of them, I think, are have a financial goal. You know, they they're like, I'm, you know, I want to be worth five million dollars. I want to be worth ten million dollars. I want to be worth fifty million. I whatever the whatever the arbitrary number yeah. is, they've got a number, and and they're like, yeah, yeah, I'm going to sell when it's worth fill in the blank. Mm -hmm. What advice would you have for someone who is chasing a number? Uh, well. Um I interviewed uh, Michael Sonnenfeld, who is the founder of Tiger 21. And he has this very famous 2% rule, which I think is, uh, answers your question perfectly. And I, I'm not um, uh, delusional, delusional, delusional enough to, to think I would know better than, than, than Michael. And the rule is very simple, that um, you need to cover your uh, living expenses with 2% of your net worth. So I think this is exactly the exercise that needs to be done for people who want to sell and uh, not worry about money for the rest of their lives. So I'm not talking about Elon Musk of this world who wouldn't care. I'm talking about the majority of us. Um, so Tiger 21, for those folks who don't know, is like a peer, peer organization similar to a YPO or an EO or a Vistage. Uh, yet it's dedicated to uh, folks who have had uh, usually an entrepreneur who's had a liquidity event. I think it was $10 million US dollars of liquid assets was the minimum. I can't remember. Yeah, it's, it's, it's 30 now, so it, it keeps growing. There you go. <laughs> uh, but it's a group that meets and has these sort of peer-to-peer -peer discussions about how you're handling money and investing in money. And uh, so Michael, the person Anastasia just referenced, is the founder of that organization. So the two percent rule, interesting. Yes. Yeah, so, so the organization is twenty five years old now, and and uh, the whole essence of it is sort of accumulating this this wisdom and knowledge about investing. Um, and um, uh, Michael um, is is really a great source of this kind of wisdom. Um, Again, does it mean doesn't mean you shouldn't sell if you can't afford uh, living on two percent? Probably not. It's very very conservative. Also, for example, if you are selling with the idea that you're going to build an even bigger business and you actually want to con continue value creating, then you can think about it very differently. So it's not the only rule out there. But if you want a rule of thumb, <laughs> that's probably as good as it gets. What about? people who look for purpose in other areas of their life. So they sell a company and they're adrenaline drunk junkies, they're achievement junkies, they're competitors. And so they flex that muscle by starting a charity, uh, uh, you know, doing some sort of athletic competition, an Ironman, a marathon, uh, you know, they're, they're moving. One might argue there's a case to be made that they're going from um, one purpose that's driven by achievement mm -hmm. to, to another that is maybe arguably not selfless in mm -hmm. your definition, is still achievement oriented. It's just maybe with a goal of achieving something other than building a business. Yeah. How would you think about someone who said, look, I, I want to sell uh, because I've got this other goal I want to go pursue, mm -hmm. but it's, it's still another goal that's going to fulfill some part of their ego and their, their sense of self-worth and so forth. How, how would you coach someone who's, who is considering that? I think it's fantastic. I think it's great. There's nothing wrong with it. Um, I also 
think that you cannot expect yourself to just become selfless over time. That's just bullshit. And I think it's actually a big, big problem because this is where uh, lots of uh, not authentic giving comes from. Um, I think it's very important to understand where you actually are in that spiritual growth and give yourself time. And when we talked about spiritual fitness, this is for me the tool I use for myself because I, I'm not a selfless person. I have a lot of selfishness to deal with and that's okay. I, I totally embrace it, but I have a system which is very similar to physical fitness. It's basically, um, I, I learned a few concepts and now I try, I incorporated them into my daily routine and I try to develop these good habits and I try to become better at it. It's very similar to physical fitness, but it's, it's too, it's just the goal is different to, um, become less self selfish, but in a genuine way, right? And it's definitely working, absolutely working, but it takes time. So I would say if you if you don't feel selfless, that's perfectly fine. Don't try to be, don't force it. it, it it's just silly. I also think that after uh, we exit the business, the first thing is, is healing, right? And that's for me, a, a no decision zone. Like you cannot commit to anything during that time. You're literally healing. You have to embrace the fact that you are in a way sick <laughs> because you're traumatized, right? And while you're traumatized, you're going through even more trauma on top of trauma. So healing is very important. But the second, the second stage in an ideal world and the world is not ideal, but in an ideal world would be exactly that would be, you know, traveling uh, to exotic destinations uh, in a challenging way, running marathons, you know, pushing yourself. Why? Because this is exactly how we know who we are, right? And this is how we find out um, what, what our true desires, what our talents are. Because sometimes people say, oh, if you want to understand what you truly love, think about your childhood. I don't like that idea because, okay, this may help you find some of your talents and desires, but were you really exposed to things that maybe would have taught you more about who you are? Probably not. So if, if we have this luxury of time and, and um, the money, we may as well uh, go and uh, run our marathons and chase whatever it is we feel like chasing while learning about ourselves. I loved your interview with Adrian Cohen and, and uh, you guys touched briefly on this idea of, of raising kids mm -hmm. after a sale. Mm -hmm. Of course, these days, you know, when you sell your company, it's not long before the entire world knows you've sold it and kind of starts to piece together <laughs> the financial impact for you. And of course, your kids see that, right? They yeah. see that online. How I'd be curious to know how you've chosen to handle it with your kids. Yeah. Um, to ensure, you know, they're not entitled little brats waiting for mom to pass over the yeah. of the kingdom. As well, what lessons you've learned from some of the interviews that you've done around how to raise kids without a sense of yeah. entitlement? This question is very close to my heart. It's 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 probably the hardest uh, not to crack in the community. Um, and my observation is that there are two school of schools of thoughts, and I'll tell you what mine is a bit later. One, which I see um, sort of third-party advisors uh, recommend uh, quite often is uh, being very open uh, with your children about uh, your wealth and the potential inheritance, bringing them into um, sort of the family. Um, in fact, one, one woman who's, who's been just focusing on this issue for 20 years, and she advises wealthy families on this for 20 years. When I asked her directly, I said, how early do you, do you think families should open, open their books? He said, whenever children can, can speak, <laughs> so the earlier the better. And the second school of thought is, is very different, which is basically trying to have uh, more modest uh, life for the sake of the children, making it very clear that they, are, they cannot rely on inheritance and trying to instill these values that they should earn their money themselves. 
So in my case, as I mentioned, my kids were very small when, it, when the first exit happened. And also, you know, unfortunately, we had to go through through this divorce. So I had to make some decision uh, when I completely wasn't ready. I was too too young, too busy. Uh, but I made the decision at that time that I will raise my children with the following philosophy: that they're not getting any inheritance. They cannot ever hope for it. They never get any money without earning it with some kind of uh, actions. And uh, I also decided that I'll raise them completely unemployable. <laughs> I'm not sure I would do it again. I'm not recommending necessarily that anyone does it, but I was young and stupid and, and uh, brave and overly confident, as I mentioned before. So for whatever reason, I really committed to that. And I started raising them exactly that way, very consistently. Now, fast forward to them being uh, 17 and 15 now. It worked. They are very entrepreneurial. They have all the, there's zero entitlement. I achieved uh, what I wanted to achieve because it was this entitlement that I really was afraid of. But I did create problems. The biggest problem was that uh, when my older one became completely financially independent at 14, his emotional maturity wasn't there. So imagine a child who, uh, for, who basically is so financially independent that there is nothing you can threaten him with <laughs> that will make him listen to you. So it's very, very scary. And he had to go through his uh, emotional roller coaster, kind of being the only child in his, in his circle with the money. He made all sorts of mistakes. By now, he's absolutely amazing. But I'm praying every single day that he's alive because it is actually a very dangerous situation for, mm. for a young person to be in. Um, so it's, but again, now that I have a smaller child, I'm looking into this again and again and again. And I'm still not sure that I uh, would raise my youngest one with the idea that uh, he will inherit a lot of money and he should be ready for it i'm really yeah, not there it's a it's a real i mean like wealth managers like they have conferences on this they have all kinds of like and and you're right i think the wealth managers seem to have this sort of prevailing idea that uh you know you, you need to talk to the kids about it and that you're very proactively uh because they've seen the other side of the horror stories of people, you know, inheriting wealth that they weren't ready to inherit and so forth. So I think they're, you know, I am not a financial advisor. Don't want to play one on the internet and, and don't, you know, proclaim to have any expertise. We did something funny. I remember, uh, when I was my kid, I can't remember. My kids were probably five and three at the time or no, no, sorry. They were older. They were maybe like nine and seven. And, and I wanted to teach them about deferred gratification and saving. And, and so I was, I decided I, I wanted to get a, a Chevy Bolt. This at the time was the electric car that Chevy was coming out with. And I thought like I'd seen some ad and thought, oh, it's going to be great. And so I, I went out and bought a giant piggy bank. One of those things, those like plastic containers that, mm -hmm. and I put it on our kitchen table and I said, guys, this is going to be our Bolt bank. Right, we're gonna save up for this new car, and every every night I would make this big dramatic entrance, to, and I'd put like my coins in my pocket and put it in the bank, and I'd say, "How's the bank?" You know, like, "All right, how? Where are we, guys?" And we'd count it all up. Oh, it's not quite there yet. We're gonna have to keep saving, and, and you know, like this whole dramatic thing, and it took years. Eventually, I bought this. I, anyway, long story short. Last year, I was having a quiet moment with my oldest, who's you know ten years older now, and uh, and he said, "Do you remember that whole Bolt Bank thing, Dad?" And I'm like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, totally." He's like, "That was just bullshit, right? Like that you were just basically this. I was just some giant life lesson." And I'm like, "Yep, busted." Yeah, kids are much smarter than we think. Aren't they? Way smarter. Uh, yeah, but yeah, way smarter. But, but you, you know the the. Uh, it just reminds me of uh, this um, uh, gentleman that gave me a very wise advice. He's in his mid-70s, and I asked him a very similar question because I thought he was incredible at raising his children. And by, by his age, you know, you can see that all the kids 
are fantastic. And he gave me a piece of advice, which I since um, am using on a daily basis. He said, it's very, very important to identify the moment when you switch from parenting to mentoring. So Mm. for me, this moment was forced on me when my son became financially independent. And I realized, okay, I have no influence whatsoever um, financially, but maybe I can use this advice and become this uh, indispensable mentor. And this worked so well because now we're extremely close. He wants my opinion, my advice about his financial decisions. And I think it's, again, I don't know if it's easy to replicate and I'm not necessarily giving any advice to anyone, but my experience shows that this uh, piece of wisdom may be uh, exactly what we need instead of opening our books and spoiling our children, we can make sure they really respect our advice and they come for it themselves. yeah, well said. And there's so much more to explore. Our time is unfortunately coming up to an end. I, um, I'm really grateful for you sharing your wisdom, both from having exited companies yourself, but also from all of the interviews you've done for Exit Paradox. So for folks who are interested, uh, the show is called Exit Paradox. I'd recommend everybody take a listen. Um, and people can find it on, obviously, the social plat- or the uh, podcasting platforms, YouTube as well. Uh, where else can, if they want to say hi on social media, what's the best channel to do that as Anastasia? Well, I have to say I'm a bit lazy with social media. I should, I should really do more, but, uh, I, I basically post on LinkedIn mostly LinkedIn. and then, uh, and then uh, Twitter. I don't really do anything else, but LinkedIn, I quite like. And we'll put uh, Anastasia's LinkedIn profile in the show notes at builttocell.com. Anastasia, thanks for doing this. John, thank you so much for your thoughtful questions. It was a lot of fun. I really, really enjoyed it. And there you have it for today's episode between John and Anastasia. If you enjoyed today's podcast, then be sure to hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your favorite shows. And if you want to help support this podcast, I'd highly encourage you to share this episode out with a friend or colleague. For show notes, including links to everything referenced in today's episode, including definitions for some of the more technical terms that were used, be sure to visit Anastasia's episode page, which you'll be able to find over at builttosell.com. Also, if you know someone who would be a great fit to be a guest right here on the podcast, I'd encourage you to nominate them. You can head over to builttosell.com slash nominate, where there you're going to have a chance to nominate yourself or someone else to be a guest right here on the show with John. Some of our best guests, like Anastasia, have come from nominations. So be sure to head over to builttosell.com slash nominate to nominate yourself or someone else. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisors are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan, and I look forward to talking to you again next week.